You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. And before we begin, let me remind you that there is a website that you really need to check out. It's called wealthformula.com, and that's where you can get all sorts of resources and free stuff to teach you about, you know, pretty much anything personal finance. And there's lots of free books there, too, like my book, Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth, uh, which you can also get by simply texting 44222 and typing Wealth Formula, one word. George Newberry's got a book called uh, Burn Zones, which is very popular about his time being a real estate um, titan. And uh, the fall from grace that ensued after that, definitely worth checking out. You can also get a hard copy of that because George will send you a real copy because, you know, he's uh, he's George. You know, he's he's uh, he's got he's got style. I'll just send you a PDF copy is all I'm going to do. So uh, also, I want to point out that, you know, there is an opportunity to get further involved uh, with Wealth Formula, and that is through our private group uh, called Wealth Formula Network. Wealth Formula Network was really sort of uh, what came of the original course, your roadmap to real wealth, uh, which um, which was released last year. Now, basically, what it is is there's this course with the, all of these really smart people uh, talking about all sorts of things in personal finance, uh, such as real estate. Ken McElroy, you've got the real estate guys, you've got um, Kevin Day talking about uh, asset protection and, and Tom Wheelwright talking about taxes, of course. And all these people, Dean Graziosi, et cetera, um, are, they come into one place and they help to create this foundation. Now, we take this foundation and we turn that into a community on which we build, and that is Wealth Formula Network. It is a place with a private Facebook group. We have bi-weekly phone calls. We have a secret portal uh, with information that only goes out to Wealth Formula Network folks. There's all sorts of perks to it. Check that out at wealthformularoadmap.com. It is, I think, the uh, best bang for your buck in masterminds out there for sure. Again, that's wealthformularoadmap.com. Uh, and especially for those of you who loved our meetup, I don't know why you wouldn't do this because this is uh, this is basically the same thing that happens all year long. So uh, anyway, let's move on. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the topic for the day. You know, uh, you may know that by um, uh, by the end of last year, the end of 2018, I I sold most of the real estate that I held by myself as a, you know as a single owner. Uh, via LLC, whatever, uh, as an owner-operator. So I own some apartment buildings, et cetera. And by the end of last year, most of it was gone, right? I don't, I don't really own much of anything anymore uh, outside of things that I'm involved with in partnerships. Um, and why is that? Well, you know, first of all, you know, why did I get into it in the first place? Well, you know, I got the bug, like, a lot of of people get the bug. You might have gotten the bug from reading Kiyosaki and thinking I should go out there and, and you know, pound the pavement and own things myself and, and uh, you know, do it myself and get cash flow and stuff like that. Well, what we realize uh, 
uh, as we go down this path is that guys like, you know, Robert Kiyosaki aren't going and renting single family, you know, buying single family homes. They are investing with guys like, you know, Kenny McElroy um, in syndications. They're not, you know, they're not, they're not out there, um, you know, pounding the pavement. They're generally um, limited partners. And in my case, I like being the limited partner, but I also am a general partner in many opportunities where I can contribute, um, you know, part of my skill set, uh, whether it's due diligence or acquisitions or whatever, uh, and let other people do part of what they're good at, like managing the asset and pounding the pavement on day-to-day basis, et cetera. You know, um, so anyway, the, the, the bottom line is the one thing that I did learn from owning all of those, uh, you know, apartment buildings, et cetera, before was that, you know what, uh, to do real estate right, it's really hard. I mean, it's really, uh, really not passive, right? It's truly not a passive endeavor un- unless you have a full-time operator doing the work for you. Now, and I'm not talking about a property manager because that's the easy thing, right? Like, oh, yeah, you know, all you need is a property manager. And for those of you who own real estate, you know that that's not true. You can't just let a property manager uh, take and only visit the, you know, not talk to that property manager, not manage the manager, not push the manager, et cetera. It is a job, okay? Um the other thing that I realized that is a busy person in general, general finding an operator with whom to invest passively uh, was actually more profitable than managing uh, my own property. So it made sense to focus on real estate potentially more in the form of partnerships, whether that be general partnership or as a limited partner. And of course, I do both. Now, a good example of that is Western Wealth Capital. Uh, a group that many of you uh, know very well and were part of, uh, w- was a big part. You saw Dave Steele come out to uh, the the recent event in Scottsdale. Uh, you may have heard Janet LePage, the co-founder and CEO on Wealth Formula podcast a few weeks ago, and they explained, um, you know, their operation, um, both of them, and you may have heard Janet say that um, you know, annualized returns for limited partners were exceeding 30% on average. Now, let me tell you from being an owner-operator of apartment buildings that it ain't easy doing that by yourself, right? So if you think you're going to make more money just being a, a guy, you know, like a, a one-person show, um, there is good evidence that that's not always the case if you are partnered with the right people. And that's why in my case, I've really focused on a team approach to my investing, and I know a number of you have made that decision as well. Um, after all, you may think that you love real estate, right? We all love real estate. I love real estate, right? And and that's true. It, but in reality, most of the time, if we think about it, it's not what, you know, the love of real estate. You might like the idea of owning things, but you really love all the benefits of owning real estate. It's what real estate does for us, not not necessarily, um, you know, the idea of, well, gosh, I own real estate, right? It's what real estate does for you in terms of cash flow, in terms of returns, in terms of tax benefits, et cetera. So participating in limited partnerships gives you all of the same benefits without a lot of the headaches, frankly. Now, last year... Um, I 
I sold a, a, a few buildings that ended up with you know, significant capital gains on which I had to deal with and initially thought I had to deal with them. But I also uh, had to figure out if there was a way, um, you know, I basically had to figure out how to how how to navigate this to mitigate my my tax burden. Now, in my case, uh, unfortunately, for better or worse, one of my failing businesses in Chicago mostly uh, solved the problem for me by basically taking most of my gains. <laughs> and so I didn't get hammered as badly as I thought I would. And I, I really highly don't recommend that you use that methodology for mitigating taxes by just having a lot of losses by one of your businesses. But that's that was uh, that was uh, that's what happened to me in that case. But so what were my options at that point? Well, before I um, before I, re- you know, realized that, you know, I most of this money was going to get written off from losses on the other stuff. Anyway, uh, I believe my options were, you know, pretty, uh, pretty clear. And um, at least from a tax perspective, now I understand I am not a CPA. I'm not giving you tax advice, but I do have a brilliant CPA who most of you know where I get my information from. And one of those options was to take as much of that um, those capital gains uh, and invest them directly into syndications, uh, syndications specifically using bonus depreciation because bonus depreciation have a significant ability um, to, uh, you know, because of the Trump tax laws, uh, to significantly decrease the tax liability based on how much you actually invest. Now, we'll, we'll have Tom on the show, Tom will write on the show to talk about that specifically at some point. But most of you who are in a, uh, the Accredited Investor Club uh, already know what I'm talking about. And that's really the only option I knew about last year and probably the one, frankly, that I would probably still use at this point in my investing life. Now, uh in recent months, however, I um, started hearing about another option that I found intriguing, and maybe you knew about it, but I didn't. But again, it's always one of these things, and it comes out, I'm like, why didn't I know about that? And um, in this case, it was something called a Delaware Statutory Trust. That's a mouthful, so we can just call it a DST. Um Admittedly, I had no idea that this was an option for me last year, and I'm again, I'm still not sure I would have used it uh, if my business didn't uh, need the money anyway. But the idea was pretty compelling. You see, there are other options to doing uh, 1031 exchanges with other property that, uh, other than that, with which that you have to manage yourself. Now, I know some of you are thinking. Well, all you do is you buy a Walgreens in that case. It's a triple net Walgreens, and in that case, you're not really involved with management anymore. I get that, um, and we'll talk about the, that a little bit more in detail later. Now, But what's really interesting about the Delaware Statutory Trust, or DST, it's that it's a really intriguing option for those looking to get out of real estate operating mode and want to avoid taxes and depreciation uh, recapture. But also don't want uh, to just own something triple net. Um, again, I totally love learning about things and 
realizing how ignorant I am, and this is another opportunity for me to do so. So when I learned about this concept of um, effectively a syndication through a DST, I was like, wow, this is something I have to get out to the audience. Now, it may not be for you, but it is something that you ought to know about, and that's exactly what we're going to be talking about this week on Wealth Formula Podcast with my guest, Leslie Pappas of Archer. Welcome back to the show. Today, my guest is Leslie Pappas, and she's the founder of and also the due diligence officer for a company called Archer. So Archer's focus is on advising investors on deferred 1031 exchanges and allows them to invest proceeds into large-scale institutional-grade commercial properties uh, that can then, of course, provide that more truly hands-off management experience. She's been featured and cited in CNN, uh, ABC, CBS, NBC, Fox. Uh, I think we finished the alphabet there. And when the Wall Street Journal, of course, um, and specifically on this vehicle that I want to really dive into today, known as the Delaware Statutory, Delaware Statutory Trust, which going forward we'll just call it DST because it just twisted my tongue. Um, Leslie, welcome to Wealth Formula Podcast. Thank you so much. It's really great to be here. I appreciate it. So um, let's uh, let's start at the beginning. We always like to kind of get to know who we're talking about. And you have an interesting background. Uh, you've been, it sounds like, uh, in real estate for about 20 years, but you are been in finance and all sorts of stuff for quite some time. Can you talk a little bit about how you ended up uh, doing what you do? Yeah, well, you pointed out that I'm old. So yes, <laughs> no, I'm in fact old. We have a lot of old uh, people listening, so don't worry. <laughs> um, uh, I came into real estate around the year 2000, and um, I came from consulting background uh, in Silicon Valley to uh, high-tech firms predominantly. And uh, basically, the dot-com bust uh, ended up in, in all consultants being fired immediately, and then a whole bunch of employees being fired. Yeah. So I thought, well, what in God's name am I going to do now? And it became real estate. Um, and I wish I had done it when I was in my 30s. I wish I had done it when I was in my 20s. Yeah, It's a great field. It's always changing. I'm always learning something new. Got it. So um, somewhere along the line, you got it into, of course, um, you know, larger multifamily and other kinds of commercial property. Right. What was that evolution to that um, from where you started necessarily in real estate? Yeah, well, it had everything to do with the availability of, at that time, tenant and common investments. We're in the field here of syndicated real estate. And syndicated real estate it has been blessed by the IRS in two legal formats. One is a tenant in common, a tick, and the other is the Delaware Statutory Trust, the DST. Um, so back in the 2000s, when this industry was born, basically, after the IRS issued revenue procedures outlining the rules and regs that ticks and DSTs would need to follow to be considered like-kind property, um, this industry blossomed, came from really very, very little just private deal-making previously. Um, and blossomed into something much larger. Eventually, uh, we, we, the highest equity we ever raised, I believe, was in 2007. It was about $4 billion. Um, 
So what we found uh, was a very early success because of the popularity of the idea of owning like-kind real estate that you defer taxes through 1031 exchange to get into, like-kind real estate where you don't have to manage anything. It's a completely hands-off experience. Um, and, uh, you know, the cash flows are, are, are pretty acceptable. Um, the overall returns are fairly acceptable. We're not talking about 20 and 30% returns per year. We're talking about a much more conservative asset than that. Um, mostly what my clients want is to keep their equity safe and they want to spin off a reasonable cash flow with some tax shelters. Yeah. So let's so back up a little bit. <clears throat> of course, in, in uh, most people listening kind of already know what a 1031 exchange is, but not everybody. So why don't you start out kind of explaining, sure. um, you know, give us, give us the high level because I want to yeah. go from that into where the DST fits into. And that's absolutely. Right. So you own an investment property, a rental property. It could be a house. It could be a condo. It could be a piece mm -hmm. of land. That's an investment property. Um, and you've had it for many years. You have uh, built some equity there. And now you decide you want to sell it. Well, when you sell it, you're going to get hit with capital gains tax. Um, from California, which is my home state, um, the tax rate is around 35 to 40% all in when you count the feds, the state, uh, depreciation recapture, and um, the new uh, tax for uh, health care to high income people. So if you can imagine you've owned a property for a while, say you're sitting on a $500,000 gain. Imagine losing a third of it yeah. or more yep. to the government in taxes. Well, 1031 exchange has been around since 1921. It's a, it's a tried and true. Whoops, there goes my iPad. Sorry about that. That's all right. I, thought I turned everything off. That's okay. Um, 1031 has been around for a long time. The idea is that you're selling an investment property and you're going to buy investment property to replace it. Um, and I'm really sorry about that going on. <laughs> really sorry about test, that. Testing our, our, our ability to focus. Okay. Yes. So basically like, uh, like exchange, right? Like, so, like kind exchange. Like, and like kind is very broadly defined. Yeah. Um, you can sell land and buy a house if you rent the house out. You can sell a house that you're renting and go buy a strip center retail. Um, you know, there's a lot of mixing that you can do here. And from the revenue procedures in 2002 and 2004 from the IRS, these forms of syndicated real estate, TICs and DSTs, are now suddenly blessed as like-kind property by the IRS which created the industry basically. Right. Right. Um, let's talk a little bit then about where, uh, the, the, okay, let, let me give you some background in terms of what, what most people in this audience are already accustomed to. So we, we talk about syndications on a regular basis. We have, a, an accredited investor club, et cetera. And we do, you know, your typical private placement syndications where you have a general partner, a limited partner, et cetera. And so uh, one of the things I, I really like about this concept of a DST is the reality is that, you know, if you already have property that you're trying to sell, 
you could get into you know a private placement that we're doing and benefit from bonus depreciation and that might be one avenue to consider but this dst gives you something completely different but explain how a how a delaware statutory trust differs from your typical accredited investor private placement in real estate with a GPLP model? Well, it's a trust. That's the basic difference. And mm -hmm. instead of owning, um, instead of being a partner, I should say, in a limited partnership, you own shares in a trust. The trust owns the property. The trust has a trustee. Um, the trustee's job is to manage the property as if they owned it themselves to its highest financial benefit to the investor. Um, and so it's just a completely different legal structure. In effect, it feels very much the same being a passive partner in a limited partnership. You don't have decision-making authority. You, didn't, you, know, you don't necessarily have a vote to do anything. Um, this is very much the same. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's simply a legal trust. That's the difference. So who, who are the decision makers typically in terms of you talked about the trustee who <clears throat> who is getting the highest and best use for the property and, and et cetera, and presumably yes. gets, you know, gets some sort of asset management fee for that. Mm -hmm. The trustee um, is a sort of a figurehead. The individual truly responsible for the property is the asset manager. Um, and again, the asset manager acts as if they own the property themselves, making decisions about opportunity and risk in the local marketplace. Um, so, you know, you have uh, lengthy, detailed financials going into these projects that project out 10 years. Um, you know, the asset managers are pivotal in terms of developing sure. these, uh, these projections. And in general, the firms that I work with use very conservative um, projections. Mm -hmm. For example, if a local rent market is truly experiencing 5% gains year over year, they might in their models put in 2% or 3% increases in revenue. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, the spirit of the industry for the sponsors with whom I work, a sponsor being a syndicator, um, you know, the spirit of the industry is to underpromise and overperform. Got it. Um, and we should talk a little about the in industry, you know, if you'd like and, and the sponsors and what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about that. I know <clears throat> I've, uh, I, you know, I do always do a little research on everybody I interview uh, rather than coming out. You know what? Sometimes when I go on to interviews, by the way, people literally say to me, the first thing is say, what do you want to talk about? And uh, I'm like, so you don't even know who I am. Why did you invite me on your program? But right. uh, I did do a little bit of research on you. And so, you know, listen to some of your other interviews. And so let's talk a little bit about the kinds of properties, because, you know, a lot of what we do in our, you know, typical traditional private placements is heavy value add. And then we sell to REITs. We sell, sub, we take sub institutional um sub-institutional level properties, um, and we do, you know, put a bunch of capbacks in there, and then ultimately sell to larger uh, institutions and REITs and, 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 uh, and that mm -hmm. sort of thing. So, so you, in this situation, would be 
you would be on the buying end of those kinds of situations. I assume you're not doing like heavy value add capex types type of acquisitions. No, today in the Delaware statutory trust format, the IRS specifically prevents us from doing heavy value adds. The idea is that because this is a trust and because there's a trustee who's got so many powers, the IRS put in its guidelines rules that would protect the investor from the trustee being a bad guy, basically. Sure. And, uh, you know, uh, putting financing on the property is disallowed. Um, doing major construction is disallowed. Uh, there are other things too, but those are the two big ones. Um, so I'm sorry, did, can I interrupt you? Did you just say that there is no debt on these properties? No, there is debt on the properties. Uh, okay. There is debt on almost all the properties. And in fact, the better properties all have debt. Okay. Um, yeah. There are a handful of all cash offerings. They tend to be more mediocre quality real estate. Sure, sure. My humble opinion. <clears throat> of course. So, and, and what are you looking for? So you're looking for things that typically are not requiring a lot of value add as so, you know, do you want to talk about the kinds of properties that you look for? Maybe the yeah. demographics, um, you know, the, the cities and I guess, you know, presumably if you're, you know, these days, um, you know, if you're not in that cap, if you're not in that value add space, what kind of, you know, potential cap rates and LTV, um, that you can, you can be looking at. Right. Well, my actual favorite kind of property to get my clients into and to recommend to them is value add. But as you point out, it's a light value add. It's not a big, heavy reconstruction. We're not tearing down walls. We're not building new buildings and garages. Sure. We're doing cosmetic upgrades to, um, you know, residential units. Um, we're doing cosmetic upgrades to common areas. We're refurbishing property mm -hmm. that might be 10 or 15 or even 20 years old right and refreshing it and as we're you know putting a couple of few million dollars into this property to dress it up we're raising rents right and as we raise rents we improve net operating income sure and as we improve net operating income we basically create appreciation for ourselves are you allowed to actually when you <clears throat> create the trust um it's in acquisition Right with with the, with the purchase cost, are you allowed to actually? I guess I don't even know what you call it. Raise money for capital expenditures yes. from the get go. Okay. Yes. Got it. That money is usually allocated out of the loan proceeds. Got it. Uh, otherwise, it would it would constitute what's called boot to the investor. Got it. And a taxable that's a taxable event that we want to avoid. Got it. And so what kind of properties are you looking at and where? So if, for example, you know, you... they run in all kinds of categories. Um, we have large scale multifamily projects that tend to be in the suburbs of secondary cities, such as Orlando, Atlanta, Nashville, Raleigh, um, Austin, Las Vegas, um, places like that. Um, for the uh, multifamily, they tend to be class A, A minus to B plus. Even the value adds tend to be B plus to A minus where we're gonna try and convert them into an A. And as you, your listeners know, these, um, these ways of typing property is extremely subjective. What is a class A property? It's a, it's a very subjective thing, um, but it tends to be one that's well amenitized 
um, with newer finishes and a very good location. That's, you know, in general, how you might define a class A property. And what do you think, when you say good locations, you're not just talking about New York and Los Angeles. No, we're in right. fact not talking about New York and Los Angeles because it's close to impossible to pencil out a cash flow right. in those kinds of cities, San Francisco, yeah. Chicago, the top tier. We don't really participate in the top no. tier. We're in the second tier. Yeah, so we, we do primarily in our group, we, we focus typically on uh, like a Phoenix, Scottsdale, Dallas, Fort Worth, yeah. Houston, <laughs> Atlanta, things like that. Is that is that the similar, similar great markets? Great markets with the exception of Houston. Yeah, Houston fails one of my one of my tests. Yeah, I, like yeah. But I'll Houston. tell you about how I qualify property or one, sure. one some of the tools. Why you I do use. that? Well, one of the things I look for when I'm looking at multifamily, which is what I do a great deal of, um, for many reasons, which I can explain. But I'm looking for growing population, not just in the in the overall market, but in the sub market within that market. I'm looking for growing incomes over time in that sub-market. Mm -hmm. And the most important factor that I can convey in terms of multifamily and, and trying to minimize risk is that the property should be surrounded by many different employing industries. It should have healthcare. It should have finance. It should have mm -hmm. manufacturing. It should have military. It should have education. As many categories um, of, uh, of econ uh, economic uh, support that we can put into this area, it helps us with our tenancy. So we don't have a preponderance of any one industry in our tenancy. Sure. So let's take Silicon Valley. My hometown is an example. Um, you know, it's a one trick pony. It's all about technology and mm -hmm. you can make a fortune in Silicon Valley, as you well know, mm -hmm. real estate, it's all based on appreciation though. Um, yep. and on a long hold period. Um, but it, when technology went sideways in 2001 and we had the dot-com bust, uh, you know, you could see through the office buildings going up 101 into the mountains on the other side of them. There was, there was nobody in the office buildings. Um, lots of businesses closed down and it affected everything in the local economy. It affected mm -hmm. the, the rents, the tenancy rates, occupancy rates. <clears throat> It affected everybody from the CPA, the medical doctor, to the woman who does the nails and the dry cleaner. Um, every business was suffering as a result. And, you know, so what, what I look for to protect my clients as best I can, and I view that as my job, is to try and protect them as best I can against laws, is a local economy that's very diversified. Mm -hmm. It's not depending on any one industry. And that's why I'm not nuts about Houston, because you've got medical and you've got oil and gas. And that's mm -hmm. what you've got. There. Well, there's a lot moving in. Also, if you look at the, yeah. the demographics in terms of U-Haul, it is the number one city in the country right now in terms of people moving in. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> that's another conversation. We just actually had an offering there with. Have that over a drink. What's that? We can have that conversation over a drink. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I actually am I'm pretty bullish on Houston. I wasn't for a long time, um, but I am now because there is a number of, of things happening in Houston that I think are are exciting. Um, and I think the U-Haul metrics are uh, a useful thing to kind of emphasize that as well. But at any rate, let's talk about um, a little bit more about the D DSD structure. So so uh, I was mentioning to you offline that last year I had a, you know, a, a 
significant, fairly significant capital gain thing. And so what I ended up doing was, well, for me, it was a little different. Um, you know, technically, I, um, you know, I had I had carry forward losses and then I had a fair amount of what, you know, bonus depreciation from the new cash, uh, the new the new Trump uh, laws on on aggregating all of the cost segregation analysis on on properties, et cetera. But um, it would have been something that would have been useful. The reason I did not 1031 is because I didn't, I just didn't, I just didn't think that on uh, for the at the level I was at. I'm not as an individual with my team. I'm interested in value add, but with you know, with uh, buying a you know 50 unit building or whatever I could have with my capital gains. I wasn't there, so instead, um, I decided, you know what, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna 1031. But that's mm-hmm. a situation where a DST would have come in handy. But the question that comes to my mind is, so does it? If you're buying shares, as you described it, it's shares in a trust. Where do the um, uh, can you sell your shares? In other words, do you have to wait until disposition again? on that property before you can say, all of a sudden you say you're, you're interested in, uh, you know, you finally found that property I wanted. I wish I could 1031 out of the DST into that property that I actually want to buy. That's, you know, in, in El Paso or something mm-hmm. like that. Or do you have to wait for disposition? You have to wait for disposition. It's an illiquid investment. Right. Um, there is no marketplace <clears throat> to go sell your shares. Now I've never been asked to do this in 15 years of doing this for a living. But if a client needed to get out of an investment for some reason, they would come to me and say, Les, I need to get out of this investment. I would go to the sponsor involved and ask them if they would have an interest in purchasing that share. If they didn't have an interest, they would um, send a communication out to the investors in that investment and ask if anybody wants to pick up some more shares. Um, The problem with this scenario is it's a very limited marketplace and the person selling is at a gross disadvantage. Um, I have heard, and I don't have personal experience with this, that anytime this has happened in the past with an investor selling out early, they've lost money. They have lost, they don't get out as much as they put in. Sure. Sure. Um, so they're at a disadvantage. So, you know, it's very important that my clients understand going in, this is going to be an investment that could be three years long. It could be 15 years long. You know, historically properties, are held five to seven years on average over the last 30 and 40 years um, in this marketplace. Um, but that doesn't mean we're going to have a liquidity in that time. Yeah. If the local market and where our property is situated is, is in a bad state for one reason or another, it may not be a good time to sell. You may elect to hang on um, until the market cures itself over right. time. Right, right. Um, so it is an illiquid investment. It is a long-term investment. Got it. And okay, so say there's a disposition. Mm-hmm. Now I have now I have to figure out a, a home for this. Um, is there any reason why I have to stay within another DST, or could I then externalize that back into uh, into a property and and I ask you that because in part that might be tough, right? Because if you own fractional ownership um, of a 25, 30, $40 million asset 
and then I'm doing a like exchange, technically it needs to be of the same value, right? Well, it needs to be the value of your shares. Got it. Okay. Um, so you may own 1% of the $50 million project. Got it. Okay. okay? So you'd have to so, back that out. You'd have to you figure don't have to, to answer your question, you don't have to stick with DSTs. Yeah. You can go into any like-kind property. The idea from an estate planning standpoint is to, we call it drop, a swap till you drop. Keep exchanging until the day you pass away. And the reason you're doing that is because every time you exchange, you're deferring paying taxes. You're deferring paying taxes again and again and again. And under current tax law, someday when you pass away, those who inherit this asset will get a stepped up basis and all the capital gains tax uh, burden from the previous right. years goes away. Right. We call that um, buy, borrow, and die around here. That's the... Exactly. <clears throat> exactly. Uh, I, I stole that from Ed, McCra Ed McCaffrey. Um, okay, so, so just so you, so you buy, borrow and die is, uh, is the concept. So, um, you know, I know you, you don't generally probably want to talk about, pers uh, you know, returns and that sort of thing, but if you're talking about a, a minus, maybe B plus, B plus stuff, uh, what, uh, uh, in, uh, in, with, with modest, uh, value add, what's, yeah. what, what kind of target, um, first of all, I guess cash on cash and then potentially IRRs are you looking at? Sure. Um, you know, you know, the disclosure, of course, past performance doesn't predict future performance. Yeah. Especially um, over the last uh, decade. <laughs> yeah. But I can tell you that there are actual performance numbers for the sponsors yeah. I work with. They have yeah. a history. There's one company, um, uh, called RK Properties, an extraordinary company. It's been around for 42 years doing this kind of work. Mm -hmm. They have uh, a track record in really fairly conservative investments um, of 12% IRRs to the investor mm -hmm. each year. Mm -hmm. So 12% um, including, dis that, so meaning it, including disposition, so with, like a cash on yes. cash of like, what, 6 7%? The cash on cash is ballpark around 6 Yeah. Appreciation is around six, and the appreciation is that high because of the value add. Right, the right. Value add creates that. Right. So uh, another company named Pasco, who I work with a lot, in addition to RK, they have a ten percent IRR historically over twenty years of operation. Yeah. Um, so you know, this is not the kind of project that your your listeners would. Um, could compare to the sorts you're doing on your own. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not super sexy money machine yeah. stuff, but it is a a very good option potentially for somebody who's, you know, got a million, couple million bucks and pulled out and, and doesn't want to go back directly into an asset and uh, right. would be fine making 6 7% on that money, right? right? So, yep. yeah, Absolutely. no, it makes a lot of sense. Um, so... Um, in in terms of like you just mentioned um you know these these sponsors and all that so what is what is archer and what is your role specifically is it is a is it basically a matchmaker kind of or well no i i, I take my role as uh one to try and de develop a portfolio for each of my clients that has the least risk possible in my opinion with matching their needs for return as best I can. Sure. 
Um, and that means to me, it means after tax return, which is one reason I really, I really like residential class property. Right. So you get much better tax advantages there. Sure. Um, so, you know, I'm a broker. That's my title. Um, but I'm more of an advisor in terms of how I operate. Um, you know, I have the advantage. Uh, this is not done in my field, but I do it. I go see the properties that my clients invest in. Sure. And uh, so I can take, say there are, say there are eight properties that are approved at this time. If I've seen six or seven of them, I can take them, rank them against each other in terms of risk versus reward potential. Because I've been to the marketplace, I've seen the property, I've spoken to the property manager. I know what's going on there. I've made right. the evaluation. Right. Uh, it's not just a matter of looking at uh, a book full of numbers and disclosures. Yeah. Uh, there's more to it than that. So my role is, is actually very active in terms of uh, forming a portfolio for each client individual to them. Got it. So you're more of a portfolio uh, manager sort of for real estate. Uh, yeah, answer. I guess that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. And, and since we're touching on the subject of portfolios, diversification is really important. And it's a great benefit of DSTs because the minimum investment is only $100,000. Right. So if I have a client with a million dollars, they're probably going to buy four or five different properties and carve the money up in between those properties. Sure. Now sure. they're going to be in four or five different geographies. They might be in three multifamilies, one student housing, one medical office. They might be in, uh, you know, an industrial property. I don't really haven't done much in years in office or retail. It's just not been a place that would be considered safe uh, as as safe as residential. Got it. Um, even truly, still not have recovered uh, these 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 areas these segments in the commercial real estate world. You always got to live somewhere is the, you know, that's, that's my philosophy on things. So, um, where can we learn more? Leslie, this has been really, uh, an interesting conversation. Oh, thank you. I'm glad I provide some value. Um, you can learn more. I have a book. I'd be happy to send off to you. If you give me a ring or send me an email, um, certainly phone calls. I'm available to folks to talk us over. This yeah. is what I do. What's the uh, what's the website? We'll put it in the show notes as well. Sure, it's called Archer Investors. Archerinvestors.com. It's Leslie Pappas. And uh, Leslie, it's been great talking to you. Thanks for being on Wealth Formula Podcast today. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Be right back. Now, welcome back to the show, everyone. So I think that this option is a really good one uh, for the right person. It may not have been right for me. Um, and I think it depends a lot on the situation uh, that you are in your life now. So for, think about it this way. Say you're in your 70s, you own a bunch of real estate uh, and you want cash flow, but you don't want the manage part, management part. So, yeah, I mean, the classic way of doing this is basically buying a triple net lease like a Walgreens or something like that or a couple of those. Um, and then just, again, deferring those taxes until uh, you die and, you know, pass on the Walgreens with uh, um, all the recapture goes away. You have new basis and then it goes to your heirs. And that's certainly a reasonable approach. Um, again, on that Walgreens, you're not going to be looking at significant cash on cash returns. You're going to be looking at who knows, you know, 6% or so, something like that. And it just goes up over time. Now, in this case, if you use a DST, the difference is that, 
say you had, okay, say you had a million dollars or $2 million in real estate, right? So say and, uh, by the end of your career, you liquidate, you get $2 million. Um, now, if you had just $2 million, like how much single, uh, how many triple net properties could you get with that of high value, right? Something stable. Well, not that many. You, you, you get a couple, but not that many. But if you invested in one of these DSTs, they can spread over a number of different properties. Um, and again, the returns aren't going to be significant. Maybe they're 5%, 6%, similar to what your Walgreens is going to give you. But now it's spread over a bunch of high, uh, you know, high level property. And it's basically giving you all of the benefits of the 1031 exchange. So, I mean, that could turn into, you know, $150,000, $200,000 of, uh, well, I don't know about that much, but it turn into a significant amount of, of uh, uh, cash flow that you can then have uh, and not even worry about having a Walgreens anymore. So it's definitely worth considering. Uh, and Leslie, although I don't know her well, does seem like someone um, worth getting to know and doing a little bit more due diligence into. Now, the only thing I have to say that I totally disagreed with Leslie about during that in interview uh, was the issue of Houston, right? Now, I feel guilty she's not here to defend her position, but... Um, she said uh, during that interview that she's not a fan of Houston. And now, listen, I get it. A few years ago, I might have told you the same thing because, you know, for people who are um, not really following this closely, the idea has always been that Houston's economy is oil de dependent. And, and that's basically it, right? Now, let's look at the facts, though. And the facts are that today the oil market the you know oil and gas price for oil and gas is down uh, you know 50% of what it was in the booming oil days uh, that that we're talking about despite that Houston is number 4 in the country in population growth um, arguably even more we'll get to that in a second and it's projected to be number 2 in net population growth over the next 3 years uh, population in Houston is projected to double in 30 years, okay? Now, Houston is number four in job growth despite a below-average oil market, and it's not a one-hit or two-hit pony anymore. It does have one of the most significant medical infrastructures of any city in the country, and I'll have to tell you one thing with MD Anderson, Baylor, all those different medical centers that are, you know, fixtures in medicine, they're not going anywhere. Oil? Oh, sure. Yeah. Sometimes it's going to make it even better. But four out of five jobs in Houston today are in service industries, hospital ancillary staff and blue collar jobs, transportation, trades, etc. And you don't believe me? Let's talk about headquarters in Houston, Boeing, United, and Chase, those are some pretty big companies outside of oil, right? And it's also the headquarters of 20 other Fortune 500 companies. Okay, so let's talk about the most recent data. I mentioned before that, you know, that number four that I had read before. I don't even know if that's true because the jobs are going there. And so are people with U-Haul numbers showing for 2018 that it was the number two population growth area, basically in migration in the entire United States behind only the Sacramento-Roseville corridor here in California, where I can't say buying real estate is the best idea in the world for a variety of reasons. Now, 
people go where there are jobs and they are going to Houston. And guess what? 42% of the population in Houston rents. And so what is that good for? It's good for multifamily. So Houston, in my view right now, is exactly the type of place where you want to look at. Why? Because people, even sophisticated people like Leslie, are not looking close enough at Houston. It is basically, you know, Phoenix Scottsdale a decade ago or two decades ago. And there's tremendous room for growth. Anyway, I just had to put that out there because I think, you know, I can, uh, you know, I, I have to defend kind of what I believe in if, if there's something that I say that I disagree. Now, if you disagree with me, let me know. Shoot me an email and I will, uh, even on Ask Buck or something like that, and I will read it out loud. And, um, you know, you can you can have your moment of, uh, of glory. So, by the way, we will be doing an Ask Buck show, so go to wellformula.com. You can find a little button there that will allow you to record questions. Uh, you can also just email me questions at bucketwealthformula.com. And, uh, you know, we will we will get them all in now. Uh, you know, let's let's talk about we've been talking a lot about real estate and the show, different ways to invest. If you want to get involved in some of the deal flow uh, and put some of that lazy money to work and stop just being a real estate groupie, um, sign up for Investor Club. Uh, that is my accredited investor group. Uh, if you are an accredited investor, make $200,000 per year, $300,000 of filing jointly, or make a million dollars, or sorry, have a net worth of a million dollars outside of your personal residence, you are an accredited investor. You aren't, uh, you don't have to sign up for anything. I mean, I mean, you don't have to get like, you know, uh, you don't have to apply for anything, et cetera. You just are an accredited investor and you can sign up at wealthformula.com. Anyway, that is it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time.